All right, good morning. We'll go ahead and get started here and let people filter in as they hear the sound of my voice, possibly. So, Lord, thanks a lot for this morning. Just thanks that uh, we're able to be at a racetrack and do what we love to do, what you've created us. And you put this in our heart to come out here and play in, play in the mud. And uh, I just pray that you keep the kids safe out there right now and uh, tune our ears to hear what you have to say this morning through me and give me your words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, the big news this week was that Tim Tebow is back in the NFL. I don't know if you guys are football fans or not, but he got picked up by the Philadelphia Eagles. And that right there exhausts my knowledge of NFL football (laughs) trivia for the week. I don't, like you, I don't have a whole lot of time to watch football but uh, there's one time a year that we all tune into football. It's called the Super Bowl. And, and this past year, 114 million people tuned in to watch the Super Bowl. And if you didn't tune in to watch the football game, you at least tuned in to watch the commercials, right? Because uh, you know that Budweiser is going to have something that makes you cry. It's either going to be puppies that makes you cry. It's going to be a horse that has gas and sets somebody's hair on fire. You're going to laugh till you cry. Because the commercials of the Super Bowl are pretty creative. It costs $4 million to get a 30-second commercial during the first half of the Super Bowl. $4 million. Uh, a couple years ago, for Super Bowl 45, Fixed Point Foundation went to Fox and submitted their 30-second commercial that they were willing to pay $4 million to have aired. And uh, Fox said, no, we can't air that. It's too controversial. And so today, you can go and you can Google it. You can look... Um, you can look on YouTube, and you can find uh, the, the commercial that didn't air, and uh, I'll just tell you what it is. The scene opens up. It's in the living room, and there's a handful of people watching the big game on the big screen in their, in their living room, and you see on the television in this commercial, you see a big play happens. Everybody in the room is high-fiving each other. They're all excited about the game, and then on camera, on, on screen, it zooms in on one of the players, and then the black ink underneath his eye, it says John 316. One of the guys says, John 3.16, what is that? And the other guy says, I don't know. And he pulls out his phone. I'll look it up. And that was it. That was the end of it. Too controversial to air during the Super Bowl. We don't mind the GoDaddy stuff that makes us blush or the Doritos commercial that are are so awkward that we just cringe. But John 3.16, what is that? I don't know. (laughs) John 3.16 is by far the most recognized Bible verse that there is. Not that many people can quote it, because most people don't know what it is. They just know it's something religious. Um, I run 316 on my bike, and it's because of that, John 316. That's the exact reason I run it. And uh, several years ago, when I first started running 316 on my bike, one of my buddies that I used to go drinking with and hanging out with, he knew that I was there was something different about me. We were at the track one day, and he said, that 316 on your bike, is that something religious? I said, well... Oh. Uh, I don't think I'm religious. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I guess we're splitting hairs there. Yeah, if you want to call it religious, it's John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the whole purpose. And we, you know, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard John 3.16. You can quote it. You know it. I grew up in church, but there's a lot more to it. And to put it in context... It's actually pretty interesting when you see the context that Jesus said this. When you open your Bible, you see John 3.16. If you've got the old-fashioned Bible, it's words written in red. Jesus said it. What was he talking about? What was he referring to when, uh, when, when he said that very thing? So let's look at it. Uh, John chapter 3 starts out in verse 1. After dark one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. 
And that's a rich statement right there. A Pharisee comes to speak with Jesus. If you've been following along all year, I've been trying to set the context of the New Testament. When Jesus was on this earth, what was going on? He was at odds with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the guys that in order to be a Pharisee, a teacher of the Old Testament, basically, one of the requirements was that you had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Not only did they memorize the first five books, most of them memorized the whole Old Testament, word for word. And then they were the ones that were instructing the people that this is what God says. This is the way that you're supposed to live your life. I, uh, I, I got here at the track on Thursday and Friday. I had to go into Bedford, Indiana, taking these backcountry roads. I drove past a little country church. And on the reader board outside of the church, it, it, in, their, uh, in their lettering, they said, Jesus says... Read the Bible, pray a lot, go to church. Jesus didn't say any of those things. (laughs) Jesus, when he talked about prayer, pray a lot, he talked about keeping prayer simple. uh, And and there was no Bible. When Jesus was on this earth, there was no New Testament. And church, Jesus said, I'll build a church. There was no church. But that's funny because that's what religion does. Here's what God says for you to live your life, and it's all my interpretation. And that was going on with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were putting this, uh, this heavy burden on the people. And Jesus comes along and he lifts the burden. He says, that's not what God's all about. That's not what the kingdom of God is all about. And the Pharisees are constantly at odds with Jesus. It's ultimately the Pharisees that have Jesus put to death. They rally the crowd to get Jesus hung on a cross. And so here's a Pharisee coming to Jesus by night. Because you can't let your buddies see what you're up to. But he comes to Jesus by night. And he says, teacher... We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. That's a pretty profound statement, Nicodemus. Because the other Pharisees are like, he's possessed by the devil. And Jesus is like, that doesn't even make sense. He cast out Satan because he's possessed by Satan? That doesn't even make sense. And Nicodemus comes and says, I see that God is with you. Obviously, the miracles that you do can only be done because God is with you. And it's, uh, it's evident at this point that Nicodemus has a question on his heart. He's probably going to say, Jesus, I see that God's with you. I just don't understand. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you do it that way? Why do you always put off the Pharisees? I mean, we're trying to love God the best that we can, and you're always against us. I don't know what, exactly what his question was. We don't get to find out because he never gets to ask his question. He says, Jesus, I see that God's with you because your miracles are proof that God's with you. And Jesus replied, I assure you, Unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. Doesn't even let him ask his question. He just says, you have to be born again. Now, in 2015, we've all heard the term born again Christian. We heard it and we've worn it out. <laughs> we, we know that thing inside and out. But if you, it's a, the first time you ever heard this. Nicodemus, a grown man, not only a grown man, but a mature man. Because it takes a long time to memorize five books of the Old Testament, let alone the whole Old Testament. So he's a mature adult. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, that doesn't even make sense. That's just kind of like I'm supposed to go back to my mother's womb. That's like an awkward Doritos commercial, you know? What are you getting at here, Jesus? And Jesus expounds. He says, you must be born by water and by the Spirit. And Nicodemus has this blank look on his face, and Jesus explains. He says, I assure you. He says, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. I love this because Jesus, the greatest communicator, God come down to earth who can communicate like nobody else, the great communicator of all time, can't explain something. Nicodemus, you're going to have to experience it. Just as the wind blows, 
can't explain to you how you're born of the Spirit, but when it happens, you understand it and you know it. And so Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You're a teacher of the Old Testament, and you don't understand this. How can I explain heavenly things to you if you can't even understand earthly things? And then Jesus says, For only I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we hear that and we think, ah, there's that words, the words of eternal life. Whoever believes in him. But what what was that whole business about Moses with the, the wilderness and a snake on a pole? What's going on there? Remember, Nicodemus a Pharisee knew the Old Testament inside and out. And to understand what Jesus was talking about, Nicodemus would have got it right away what the story was. He wouldn't have understood the context or, or the application of the story, but he would have known, oh, Jesus is referring to numbers. Of course, today we have our, our Bible broke down into chapter and verse. He was referring to Numbers chapter 21. And so to look at that, we go way back in history. Go back to 2,000 years before Jesus was even on this earth. God comes to a guy named Abraham, and you've heard this before. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want to reveal myself to the whole world, and I'm going to use you to do it. Through you, I'm going to make a great nation with lots of people, lots of land, and the whole world is going to be blessed because of it. Abraham's like, great, that sounds good to me. Abraham has a son who has two sons. One of them has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Before there's the 12 tribes of Israel, before they're the nation of Israel that still exists today, they're just a family. About 80 people, and there's a famine in the land, and they go to Egypt because there's food in Egypt. So while they're in Egypt, they are able to survive. They have food to eat. They're able to survive. Not only do they survive, they thrive. And they become a great number of people, as multiple as a sand on the seashore. God's first promise to Abraham is lots of people has come true. You fast forward 400 years, and there's thousands upon thousands of them. And the Egyptians are like, wait a second. These Israelites, not the family of Israel, the nation of Israel, if they knew how powerful they were, they could rise up and take over our country and take over our land and they could enslave us. Let's do it to them before they do it to us. Have them in chains and they're captive and they're slaves in the land of Egypt. And it's hard work. And they're, they're uh, well, they're slaves. I mean, there's no good way to put it. And they cry out to God and say, God, what about your promise? Deliver us. So God raises up Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no way, i got free labor here. And Moses is like, you know, God, he tells, he's telling me to tell you to let his people go, and there's ten plagues. There's flies and locusts and frogs, and the river Nile turns into blood. And finally, the last plague is the firstborn son of every Egyptian family dies. At that, Pharaoh's had enough. Get out of here. Let's the people go. The Israelites, they march out. They're going out. To, they're going to go to their own land somewhere, and they come to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh changes his mind. And Pharaoh's like, wait a second. I just lost my free labor force. Go get them. And so he rallies his whole army and he goes after the Israelites. And the Israelites are hedged in with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And there's nowhere to go. Don't ever let somebody tell you that God will never give you more than you can handle. Because that's exactly where the Israelites were at. They were in some place that they could not handle. A situation that was bigger than them. Something was going to have to give certain death in front of them with the Red Sea probable death and certain enslavement behind them with Pharaoh and his army. And God says to Moses, stretch out your staff and the Red Sea parts. 
and the Israelites march through on dry ground. The Egyptian army sees it happen. They're like, hey, we can do it too. They charge in on dry ground and the water collapses on them. And there is no more Pharaoh and there is no more Egyptian army. The Israelites are free, free indeed. Never have to worry about Egypt ever again because there's nobody left to pursue them. And so they go out into this desert land and God's done something great and miraculous for them that they couldn't do for themselves. It's awesome. They have a celebration. They go out into the desert. Next thing you know, they're thirsty. And instead of saying, God, you who provided for us so great in the past, why don't you provide water for us out here? They're like, hey, why did we come out here to die anyway? And God provides water for them from a rock. Next thing you know, they're hungry. They're like, why did we come out here to die? <laughs> and I look at that, and I want to be really critical of them, but then I realize my own life. You know, God, you've done something amazing in my life, but a week goes by, maybe two weeks go by. I'm like, God, do you even hear my prayers? I mean, I'm praying every day. I don't think my prayers are going any higher than the ceiling. And, oh, I'm just like the Israelites all over again. And so finally, you know, God provides. They wake up one morning. They're hungry. They wake up. There's these little white flakes on the ground. Somebody has the nerve to taste one. And like, ooh, that tastes like honey. This is like food of the angels. We'll call it manna. And so they start eating this manna and they have water to drink. But you come to Numbers chapter 21. And the wind is being very helpful here. And they come to Moses. They say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained yet again. There is nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and we hate this wretched manna. Complaining at the top of their lungs. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and many of them were bitten and died. There are consequences. There are consequences for unbelief. There's consequence for complaining. There's consequence for rebellion. Of course, we know this side of the New Testament, the wages, the consequence of sin is death. And we read here, many of them were bitten by poisonous snakes and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned. We get it. We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to the top of a pole. Those who are bitten will live if they will simply look at it. And so Moses made a snake out of bronze, attached it to the top of a pole. Whenever those who were bitten looked at the bronze snake, they recovered. Moses, we've sinned. We get it. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against you. Pray that God will take away the snakes. Moses prays, God, will you take away the snakes? God says, no. Here's what you're going to do. Make a replica of the snake. Attach it to a pole. And if anybody is bitten by a snake, they can look at the snake on a pole and they will be healed. You guys recognize this symbol? We see it on every ambulance. We see it on the patch of every paramedic. What's in the very middle of it? It's a snake on a pole. Now, in full disclosure, we call this today, in modern America, we call this the rod of Asclepius because we refer, we refer it back to Greek mythology. The, the Greeks, they came up with Zeus and Apollo and Asclepius who had this pole with a snake on it and he was a healer. We attribute that to, to uh, Greek mythology. Greek mythology was a thousand years after Moses was in the wilderness. Where do you think the Greeks got the idea from? Of course... We can't admit that anything in the Bible might possibly be true or have any influence on us, but to this day, the snake on a pole is a symbol of healing. We go back to the Bible, and we read about another snake. Of course, this is in the very beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Six days of creation, on the final day of creation, He creates man. Everything is good. Not good that man should be alone, so God creates for Adam a helpmate called Eve, 
Adam and Eve places them in the Garden of Eden. Everything's perfect. They've got fruits, they got vegetables, they got the theobroma cacao tree, the chocolate tree. Everything's good. Life is perfect. God says there's one rule in this garden. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. So one day Eve is out there and a snake comes up to her and says, and I know it's kind of weird a talking snake, but the beginning of time, who's to say that snakes aren't allowed to talk? I don't know. Comes up to her and says, did God say you're not allowed to eat any of the fruit in this garden? And Eve's like, no, he didn't say that. He just said, don't eat of that one tree. Don't even touch it or we'll surely die. And the snake says, you won't die. God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat that tree, if you do what he says don't do, your life will be complete. God just doesn't want you to have any fun. Just like every single one of us have done. God, you say don't do that. God, you say to live your life. I think you're holding out on me. I think if I make decisions for my life and I do my life my way, it's going to work out the way that I want. Forget you. I'll do it my way. Eve says, all right, hey, I'll try that. She gives it to Adam. God comes down in the cool of the day to have his daily walk with them. They're not there. He says, Adam, where are you? It's like, well, God, it turns out I don't have any clothes on. <laughs> How did you know that, Adam? Did you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat of? And Adam can't, he can't, he can't even lie about it. He's like, she told me to do it. <laughs> Blames it on Eve. He's like, that snake, he told me to do it. Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Cursed are you. God cursed the snake. If you're walking out there today and you see a snake and something jumps out of your mouth, a four-letter word, it's cool. God cursed the snake too. God didn't cuss the snake, I suppose, but he did curse the snake, and here's his curse. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Or more literally translated, you will grovel in the dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We think we know who the snake is at this point. We think it's Satan. But in Revelation chapter 12, it's cleared up for us. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And God says, Satan, there's going to be enmity between you and between the woman and her offspring. Which is what? The human race, right? There's going to be friction between you and the human race. And there's going to come a time when he, somebody of the human race, will bruise your head and he will bruise your heel. 1968, archaeologists were digging in uh, eastern Jerusalem, and they dug up an ossuary box, or an ossuary, which is actually called a bone box. It's just a box, about like that, and uh, in ancient ritual, it was customary for the person who died to be buried in a tomb. And on the one-year anniversary of that death, the family would go back into that tomb, and they would remove the remains, which at that point, all that was left was bones. And they would take those bones, and they would put them into a box, and they would put that box into a crypt, like a big old filing room. And so in 1968, these archaeologists dug up a bone box, and on it was the inscription, Johohanan, the son of Hagokal. Big old mouthful of words right there. It was one of the most significant finds ever, because this was the remains of somebody who had been crucified. We know that a lot of people were crucified. We know of crucifixion because of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, it was not the Romans who invented crucifixion, but it was the Romans who perfected crucifixion. The, uh, the historian Josephus tells us that the Romans crucified thousands and thousands of people. And because these people were, were um, enemies of the state of Rome, and because these, enemies, or because these people were criminals, they weren't given a proper burial. 
Matter of fact, the custom, the tradition was for those people to hang on the uh, to hang on that cross and let the birds and the animals come and feast on the flesh, and they would just rot away. And it was a it was a, a testament and a memorial. Do not cross swords with Rome. And so for somebody to receive a burial was pretty significant. We find it very significant that when, when Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea has to go to Pilate, the big guy, Pilate, and request permission to remove Jesus' body from the cross so that it could receive a customary burial because that just didn't happen. Here we have Johohanan, son of Hagokal, who received a customary burial, and his bones were eventually put into an ossuary. And we know that he was crucified because the nail was still in his bone. Matter of fact, there was a nail that was driven through the right heel of Johohanan. That nail was made of iron, and it had uh, olive wood still on it. They were able to determine it was from an olive tree, which was and still is abundant around Jerusalem. They don't grow very tall. They don't grow very straight. So it was a short cross that he was, that he was nailed to. That nail had a piece of acacia wood around the outside of it, in between the head of the nail and the, and the heel bone right here. So it was a washer to keep the foot from slipping off. And so now it's very evident how the crucifixion went down for Johohanan. A nail driven through his right heel into a piece of wood to hang him on the cross. Now you read Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. You see, from the very beginning of time, God had a plan to deal with sin. He gave us free choice. That tree in the middle of Garden of Eden, that tree of knowledge of good and evil, why did God put it there? You can't have love without free choice. If we didn't have the option to turn our back on God, it wouldn't be love. That's the amazing thing of the human race. We have free will. We can accept, we can reject. And God has a plan because He knew what we would do. And from the very beginning of time, He told Satan, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Because what happened on the third day? Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death. Now, what was the deal with the snakes in the wilderness? Why did a snake have to be attached to the top of a pole for people to look at and be healed? The amazing thing is that the snake was evil. The snake was the problem. How do you put the problem? How is it that the problem becomes the solution? We know that sin is the problem. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He explains it to us so that there is no doubt about this. He who knew no sin, Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might be made right with God through him. Sin is the problem crucified on the cross. The sin, our sin is crucified on the cross. God said it to the Israelites in the wilderness. He said, if you just look at the snake, you will be healed. What do you do when you're bitten by a snake? Me? I'm going to run screaming like a little girl. And then, you know, I'm going to make a cut right above where I got bit. I'm going to ask somebody to suck the poison out, right? It's an urban legend. Don't ever do that. That's just stupid. <laughs> you got to go find, you got to go find one of these people. You got to go find a medic. You got to get to a hospital. You got to do something. God says, if you will not do something, if you will just look at the snake on the pole, you'll be healed. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. Even as I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, so that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, me, to die on your behalf. Talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we hear about him two more times. John chapter 7. 
we hear that Nicodemus is having a discussion with some of his Pharisee friends, and, and he kind of sticks up for Jesus, and his Pharisee friends are like, well, why don't you go on to Galilee and hang out with him yourself? John chapter 19. This is after Jesus has died on the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, may I remove the body and give him a, a customary burial? And Pilate says, yes. In verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. And so they took the body of Jesus and they buried him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And on the third day, the tomb was empty because Jesus conquered sin. And that's how you and I conquer sin in our lives today is through Jesus. And it's not that we have to do something. It's not that Jesus said that you have to read your Bible and pray and go to church and all that. He said, look, just the smallest amount of faith. You just look to Jesus who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if you've grown up in church and you've heard this story a hundred times, now we understand the context of John 3.16, how we can let people know that there is hope for them in a dying world. If you've never made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, today is a great day to do that because you don't know what tomorrow brings. Lord, thank you for this morning. Just thank you for the people that are gathered here. I pray that you'll do an amazing work within our lives. I pray that you will make yourself known to us. I pray that through us, you will make yourself known to this GNCC race and nation. We love you. We look forward to serving you. I pray that you go with us and draw us close to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys, and have a great race.